Welcome to Investing in Integrity. I'm Ross Overline, CEO and co-founder of Scholars of Finance, a rapidly growing organization on a mission to inspire character and integrity in the finance leaders of tomorrow. If you're an investor, finance professional, or student aspiring to make an impact with capital, this show is for you. Investing in Integrity brings you conversations with leading minds in finance to help you learn how you can make finance a force for good by investing in integrity. In today's episode, we were joined by Sheila Bear, twice named by Forbes magazine as the second most powerful woman in the world. She is perhaps best known as chair of the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, or the FDIC, from 2006 to 2011, when she steered the agency through the worst financial crisis since the Great Depression. Sheila has spent many years in government, academia, and finance. She was the acting chair of the CFTC, ran government relations for the New York Stock Exchange, served as the assistant secretary of the Treasury for financial institutions, and eventually was appointed to her role at the FDIC. If that's not enough, after serving as FDIC chair, she was the first female president of Washington College, and today serves on multiple boards, including chairing the board of Fannie Mae. And she even writes children's books about finance. Sheila had a front row seat in the room where it happens during the Great Recession and played a pivotal role in steering the U.S. and the world through the crisis. She has been an incredible mentor and teacher to all of us at SOF, and I cannot wait for you to hear from her. So without further delay, we bring you Sheila Bear. Sheila Bear, it is such a pleasure to have you today on the Investing in Integrity podcast with Scholars of Finance. Before we dive in, how are you and where are you calling in from today? I'm good. Just had a nice, relaxing uh, Thanksgiving week with my family. I'm at our home on the eastern shore of Maryland. It's a lovely area, lovely rural area on the Sassafras River. It's an estuary off of the Chesapeake Bay. So we enjoy it a lot. It's uh, bucolic and lots of long walks with the dogs and all that kind of thing. So we're enjoying ourselves. Mildly jealous and inspired hearing this this picturesque view as the picture unfolds in my mind. Sheila, I want to dive right in. I have so many questions for you. And and one interview on the podcast isn't nearly enough to even scratch the surface. For our listeners, I want to try to glean as much insight from you as I can. (laughs) To begin, hearing your story, you know, I'd love to hear about your early career, sort of the arc of your life. You know, you've had myriad roles in academia, a brief stint running for the US Congress. Um, before running the FDIC, eventually being a president of a college, having done so many things. Um, Can you just share a bit about your story with our audience to orient everyone? So I uh, grew up in Southeast Kansas, a little town called Independence. It's it's an economically depressed area, traditional conservative Republican family. (laughs) My dad was a doctor. My mother was a nurse. We went to college and law school at KU. That was the family school. Everybody goes to KU in my family. Made it to Washington primarily to work for Bob Dole, my home state senator at the time, who uh, that was in the early 80s, actually 1981, when the Senate had just flipped Republican after being Republicans have been in the minority for something of 40 years, a long, long time. It was when the Reagan Revolution, Reagan came in, brought a lot of Republican senators with him. So Dole had assumed a committee chairmanship on the Judiciary Committee and was looking for a counsel to help him with that. And that's really how I got my start in Washington. And Stayed with him for about eight years in various capacities and then went on to do all the other things you're talking about. I was a commissioner on the CFTC and acting chair for a while, 
I was an assistant secretary of financial institutions. I was a senior vice president at the New York Stock Exchange. <laughs> I've been in, I've been in government and the private sector. I think that's important. You know, I'm not a fan of the revolving door, but I do think people in government should have some private sector experience too. I think if they understand how markets work and financial institutions work, it makes them better policymakers and, and better regulators. So it was, uh, you know, I started actually, I specialized in civil rights law when I uh, worked for Dole, a lot of big civil rights issues in front of the committee at that time, the Voting Rights Act extension, Martin Luther King holiday, disability discrimination. Those were all things that Dole's very active on. And I had the privilege to help him with and expanded beyond that to other issues and, and eventually ended up in finance. So it's, yeah, it's been a good ride. I think, you know, people ask me for career advice and I tell them to keep your eyes open for opportunities, you know, be nimble, be flexible, but also focus on the job you have, do the job you have, do it well. That almost always pays off. I do think sometimes young people, if they're ambitious, they're instead of waiting for opportunities to present themselves, they're looking for the next thing as opposed to focusing on the job they have and really doing the job you have well, the opportunities will come. That That's always been my experience. I really appreciate you sharing that and can plead guilty when I was young to always looking at what came next. And I, I will say in my late 20s and now just having turned 30, I'm still feeling like a child at this age. I feel like I'm finally getting a grasp of what it means to just yeah. have some staying power and do what you're doing well. And I'd love to segue the conversation a bit into discussing the economy and finance just to start. You have been on hundreds of interviews around international publications, live and print across the globe. I'm really interested to know where your interest in economics and the economy and finance originated from. In college, I was a philosophy major, actually, not a very practical major, but a, a really one that I thought was with good training for that exposed you to other disciplines. It was a good foundational major for law, but I also took a lot of economics. I loved economics. I loved the logic of it. I love the the elegance of it. It's kind of hybrid liberal art science kind of a discipline. It works. I mean, you can see it. A lot of it is so much just based on common sense and understanding of human behavior and how we pursue our own interests in a way that could hopefully produce the greater good. I don't believe in free-for-all markets, but I do think that free markets properly overseen can present optimal outcomes. I still believe that. A lot of people know me. I certainly have been an advocate for regulation, an advocate for equity and inclusion. So a lot of people think, oh, you're Republican. <laughs> yes, I am. still am. Not a Trump Republican, but I am a Republican. Probably too old to change now. But I do think markets, if properly overseen, do produce the results you good, optimal public policy outcomes as well. I think when we've seen bad outcomes come from a market-based economy, it's been because incentives have been skewed. Sometimes regulation can be harmful by creating wrong incentives. There's not been enough transparency. You've had information asymmetries, so the market cannot market can only function if parties to transactions are reasonably knowledgeable on what they're the kind of transaction they're running into, which is it's a good thing to remember in finance. I still believe that. It's not a perfect system. It's the best anybody's come up with. I fear now because I think we're we're losing a lot of accountability and market discipline that comes with well-functioning capital markets. That's been a trend for decades and it concerns me a lot. Interesting. I, there's so many threads to pull on there and I have so many questions. Yeah. The first thing I'll react to very quickly and then dive into something more substantive is that I think a philosophy major is a very useful major. It's one of the degrees that teaches you how to think 
Yeah, it does. It does. Uh, I think philosophy and economics both share that. They teach you mm-hmm. how to think yeah. and equip you for a lifetime of critical thinking. Um, and clearly it served you well, just given your career and the impact that you've had and your, the influence you've, you've had over time. The other thing that I appreciate you sharing is, yes, capitalism is a system. If you just look at the data and you look at history, there is no socioeconomic system, economic system, I'll say, that has produced as much prosperity and inclusion as capitalism has. However, yes, it is not a perfect system yet. Anyone who thinks that after you know, only 8,000 years of recorded history, like humanity in the last 200 years just found the perfect economic system <laughs> that cannot be improved at all, that That's cannot right. be questioned, I think is blind or hubristic. Obviously, with I think the proliferation of stakeholder capitalism, there's a notion, ESG investing, there's a whole host of trends that I think are producing good behavior and taking the best parts of capitalism and the best parts of other systems to maximize human flourishing. And it's really interesting. You had mentioned aligned incentives You know, just now. A little over a year ago, you actually came and spoke to our students and you mentioned that markets produce good behavior when incentives are properly aligned. Right. And I want to ask you, how do we ensure that incentives are aligned and stay aligned? And yeah. what are some of those behaviors that you think we need to see? Right. Well, I, I think there needs to be accountability. I mean, people who come up with a great new product or service innovation, smart business model should be able to make a lot of money off of that by providing value. And if it doesn't work out, they should be allowed to fail and, and take their losses. I can't capitalism can't work unless it goes both ways. <laughs> and the problem with, with the bailout policies we pursued and the monetary policy, which is really we just kind of have serial bailouts at this point, every time there's a challenge, I think we've been too quick to rely on very low interest rates to kind of prop everybody up. And so it's, it's this constant ratcheting up where nobody really takes their losses anymore. And a lot of value is not, well, shareholder value is being created through financial engineering you know, buybacks, dividends, less so in terms of actual value creation, new products, new services, value producing, uh, mergers and acquisitions. We're seeing less and less of that. I do think this is because you don't just don't have the incentives. You know, it's really easy to issue a bunch of cheap debt and do a big buyback. <laughs> you can get your share price that way. <laughs> What's hard about that? So that's easy to do. But how is that contributing to the economy, you know, and it's not sustainable either, but it's just that making money that way has just become too easy to do. And, and I think this is the, the protracted period of ultra low interest rates we've experienced, plus the propensity to bail out the financial sector when there's a problem. That's the threat to capitalism that I see. And, and we need to get back to letting firms and banks fail. If they take risk, if they screw up, let them fail, let them go down. The good pieces of that will revive. <laughs> they'll go someplace else. Somebody will buy them or, you know, they'll be recreated. But you've got to let that dynamic work in a capitalist society or you don't get the benefits of capitalism. And that's what I worry about more than anything right now. I appreciate you sharing that there needs to be accountability in the system for free markets to actually function. How do you reconcile that with the size of the banks today? You know, the whole yeah. the whole rationale yeah. for the bailouts was they are quote too big to fail. What do we do at this point when you have, you know, globally systemically important institutions that apparently can't fail lest, you know, we well, have another great depression. That's right. Well, you need a combination of utility like regulation, which we're kind of half pregnant on that. I think we're there's still a lot of risk taking and outsized so they don't really operate as utilities, but at least the pieces that are within the safety net 
they're essential to payments and credit intermediation. Probably there should be really that they almost are public utilities. You need a good dose of smart regulation. I don't like a lot of complexity, but you know, capital standards are really important. We probably don't do as well as we should. There are ways to resolve a large institution and impose some accountability. We did not do that. I think, you know, we during the, the financial crisis, we presented these choices as binary, the bailout or let the system go down, and there were intermediate steps. We could have imposed losses on subdebt holders, just could have, didn't do it. We could have fired a lot of people, just didn't do it. There are intermediate steps short of forcing a large institution to bankruptcy that you can take that can impose accountability. There was just a lot of reluctance to do that. We have better tools. Sorry about the legal tools weren't there. We have very good legal tools now to resolve an entire, through Title II of Dodd-Frank, which is something I worked on, gives the FDIC the authority to take a, the entire financial institution into receivership, or excuse me, into a resolution, not a receivership, into a bridge bank type structure where you can impose accountability on management, on boards. You can haircut unsecured bondholders, sub-debt holders. Those tools are there now. They weren't as clear as they should have been in 2008. So I do think you have the capacity to do that while providing funding for the institution to continue to function. You know, when people say, oh, you can't, they're too big, you can't take them down. Well, what you need to do is make sure you provide liquidity so they can continue to support their customers. They can fund their mortgages or they can fund their small business lines of credit or whatever really cannot real function to the real economy they are providing provide financing, continue to liquidity, continue that. That's on the asset side of the balance sheet. On the liability side of the balance sheet, you don't need to bail them out. <laughs> you can impose losses, right? That's what happens in a bankruptcy. You can certainly wipe out the, the shareholders. We didn't even do that for a lot of these institutions. I think that misunderstanding of where you need to focus when you get into a resolution situation, you want to impose accountability on the liability holders and the people that were running the bank, not the people that are using the bank, them you want to protect. I appreciate you sharing how we need to impose real expectations. What, what I'm thinking of, the story that is coming to mind as you're sharing this is actually HSBC back in 2012. Uh, there's actually a Netflix series, Dirty Money, one of my favorite series, and they did an yeah. episode about HSBC and how I think it was in 2012 after admitting clearly to being the money launderer, I think of over around a billion dollars in assets for the Selenoa yeah. drug cartel, right? Just yeah, fueling right. rape and murder and drug addiction throughout the, the globe. HSBC was fine. They settled at like a $1.9 billion settlement during a year when they made $20 billion in profit, yeah. not revenue, in profit. Yeah. There's like oh, maybe a slap on the wrist at best. And you yeah. hear a lot of Main Street complain about this. I think your point on a utility-like regulation actually makes sense, at least in initial kind of first blush, when financial transactions really are just going to become a critical base layer of our functioning right. economy. What do you think gets in the way of us moving in that direction? And, and what are some of the things that you think finance professionals need to know to be yeah. amenable to that? Yeah. And what can yeah. what, do, what do regulators need to hear in order to further drive that forward? We are somewhat moving in that direction, but it's hard. It's easy to just bail them out. It's a lot easier to bail them out than it is to make tough decisions around haircutting bondholders and shareholders and firing people and cleaning up the institution. And, it, you know, even to, you know, short of a situation where the institution's actually failing, you know, really egregious violations like that, 
those should be life-threatening, frankly, <laughs> for institutions that commit those types of offenses. And instead, these fines have just kind of become a, a cost of doing business. I do think part of it, they're not just too big to fail. They're just too big, period. Politically, they're highly influential. And look, and I don't want to paint everybody with the same brush. I think the banks are so much better. Wall Street is so much better than it was, certainly in 2008, 2009. There is real value creation there. They do provide important service. But are they as stable as they need to be? Probably not. Or are there sufficient disincentives for the kind of behaviors we saw in the past? Probably not. There is too much of this pay a fine. It's the cost of doing business. So, but, you know, that regulatory spine is really part of the answer. I think that and market discipline, if by doing billions of money laundering to fund terrorists and God only knows what else, without the number of government regulation and the government backstrop, that by itself would bring an institution down because who wants to do business with an institution like that, right? But it's almost the regulation and the inclusion of the financial safety, the federal safety net almost protects them and it legitimatizes continuing to do business with them. So that's part of the problem with the system we have. I do think they need to be smaller. I think if you raise capital, forcing them to be smaller, more efficient, I do think would unlock shareholder value. The best, the most elegant way to do that is just raising the capital standards. For them to actually operate with the level of capital that is truly keeping them stable through good times and bads, they couldn't make their ROE. They just could not this size and complexity. There are a lot of inefficiencies with these large institutions. Getting them, breaking them into smaller pieces, more specialized pieces, I think, would provide a lot of shareholder value, but that takes courage to do. And then I just don't, the regulators have an interest in incentivizing it. So we have the system we have. I do think it's better on the margin. I'm a big fan of Lael Brainerd. I think she's really sharp in regulation. I was glad to see her be promoted to vice chair. She's not in charge of vice chair supervision, but she's elevated in stature at the Fed. I think she'll help Jay Powell a lot in understanding some of these issues. Because too big to fail is destabilizing, too. They, you do, again, with that continuous ratchet up, serial bailouts. It's interesting that in the pandemic, we also bailed out the institutions, but indirectly, this is a new thing. We actually bailed out the customers of the banks, right? So we bailed out the corporate bond markets, you know, the leveraged loan market, all the high, all the, the entities, the highly leveraged entities where the banks had exposures, they were bailed out through Fed interventions and announcement of kind of a wholesale backstop. And that was a great boondoggle for the banks because then these corporations, the bond markets, even the highly leveraged ones, the bond markets were open to them. They could issue new debt. They could pay down the credit lines so the banks didn't have to hold all those exposures. It worked out beautifully <laughs> for everyone, except again, there was no discipline. There was no punishment. You, you didn't feel any pain at all. If you were poorly managed and highly leveraged going into the pandemic, you were just fine. And the bank that lent money to you was, <laughs> was just fine. So I think we got through it. And I hate to sound like I'm second guessing because we did get through it. But I do think you have to look at the long-term incentives you're creating when with these massive interventions that, that protect people from their own misbehavior. It proliferates a whole series of questions. When you, yeah. when you dive into any corporation or institution, simply being a collection of individuals, of people, there's sort of collective accountability, there's individual accountability. How do you balance the two? What yeah. is most effective? Maybe for our yeah. second podcast interview one day, we can dive into that. Because I actually want to ask you, okay. I want to ask you another question. Your tenure as chair of the FDIC came at a really an incredibly crucial time, arguably the most crucial time in any living person's recollection. Maybe save the super centenarians who were alive during the depression. Depression, um, yeah. yeah, right. 
you were the chair of the FDIC immediately before, during, and after the Great Recession right. in 2008, right. 2009. You had mentioned previously that in 2006, the FDIC pushed for higher lending standards. Mm-hmm. You've talked about this a little bit. would love for you to share what got in the way at that time. What got in the way yeah. from achieving that? It's a good question because it exposes some weaknesses in our current regulatory structure. So yeah, I came to the FDIC in the summer of 2006. Our economists were looking at the housing market instability and now lending the standards had just horribly deteriorated. By the fall of 2006, we started pushing for tighter lending standards. Now, part of the problem was the bank regulators could only do lending standards for bank mortgages. A lot of this was being by non-bank, you know, mortgage bankers that were selling their mortgages directly to Wall Street securities firms through the securitization process. So the big banks like JP Morgan Chase, Wells, et cetera, they were doing the securitizations, providing the warehouse financing for that. So they touched them, but the traditional banks did not. We can only touch part of it, but still that was an important part to touch. And the thrifts were really part of this. Most of them did fail. The big ones, they all failed. They were doing this really unsustainable lending. But we started pushing for this. And initially, the Fed actually resisted us. The Fed was the only one that had authority to write lending standards for both banks and non-banks. And they just didn't do it. They just didn't want to do it. They they kept saying, I couldn't believe it. They said this in testimony in the spring of 2007 that they were concerned that they imposed lending standards. It would constrain credit. Well, duh. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we want to constrain credit. That kind of credit that was going out the door. And then we got into this turf thing between the OCC, which regulated national banks, and the Office of Thrift Supervision that regulated thrifts, that the OCC was willing to have tighter lending standards for something called option arms. Remember those? It was like the pick-a-pay mortgages. So thrifts were doing that. They would give you a very low payment that would actually negatively amortize. So the OCC wouldn't let the national banks do that. But the OCC was letting their national banks do adjustable rate subprime. And frankly, those were just as bad. And we wanted to get rid of all of it. But there was this big fight between the OCC and the OTS over whether we just did subprime or Alt-A. And we wanted to do both. And that the Fed was not being helpful. And the point is, but these four regulators fighting it out with each other. And a lot of it was just turf related about what the banks were regulated, what kind of lending they were doing. We could kind of stay pure because we did the community banks. They weren't doing any of it. You know, there are a few, but for the most part, you know, they did small business lending, that kind of thing, or traditional mortgages. So it was the spring by the time we finally got some standards out of 2007. I think it was probably the fall before they finally got final. But then it was too late. And there again, it was just bank lending. And it was these mortgage bankers that were doing the, the bulk of it, not all of it, but the majority of it. I argued in my book, we need to consolidate. I put all the insured banks under the FDIC. I put the holding companies and the insured bank affiliates under the Fed and be done with it. I think that would streamline it. We did get, the OTS was abolished in Dodd-Frank. So now we're down to three bank regulators. And I think it's a little easier now to get agreement, but it was it was a horrible problem and delayed a lot of things that needed to be done very quickly that just didn't get done. One thing you bring up, you talk about this turf for between multiple regulators. I've actually talked about this in a prior episode with Chris Larson. Chris Larson, who's the executive chairman of Ripple, creator of XRP, you're familiar, has come on in the past. And I I talked about this with him a little bit, and I love your perspective on this. He laments, of course, the regulatory regime because I think it was in 2015, I think it was Treasury declared XRP a currency, I believe. And then in 2020, 
he hears that the SEC has now declared it a security. Security. <laughs> right. That, yeah. And and yeah. I mean the Ripple case is really, you know, considered to yeah. be the sort of watershed case in the future yeah. of regulation of cryptocurrency. One thing we talked about is how the regulatory regime and environment, there's so many competing trade-offs to consider. You know, on one yeah. hand, you want to crack down, on the other hand, you want to allow for innovation. And when you look at, I believe, UK, Singapore, there are countries that have one single regulatory body overseeing all financial activity in a country, where I think we have eight to a dozen in the US regulating yeah. our financial system. Would you give us the goal and the bear case yeah. on the yeah. number of regulators we have? Would it be better to have just one financial regulator in the US? Or yeah. is it better that we have 12 different agencies? What's your take on that? I don't think you want to go all in with just one. Sometimes regulatory competition can be a positive. But we do. Yeah, I was just talking about the multiple bank regulators we have. And you're right. We've got market regulators, the SEC, derivatives regulators, the CFTC, got the FHFA that regulates the home loan banks, the GSCs. You've got state insurance. <laughs> it's all over the place. So what I've argued is to consolidate the bank regulators with the Fed and the FDIC and then, and then merge the SEC and the CFTC. And then you go. Those are really the major ones. Market regulation is different from bank regulation. Market regulation is a lot different from safety and soundness regulation, which is where really banks focus. Actually, the cryptocurrency space, the issues that are being presented there are much better dealt with by the market regulators. And I know I'm going against the tide on that because the President's Working Group just basically endorsed a bank model for regulating stablecoin, which I think is a very bad mistake. The issues they're presenting now with cryptocurrency are manipulation, they are investor protection, they are transparency. Those are things that the SEC and the CFTC do way better than the Fed, the FDIC, or the OCC. And I say that as a former bank regulator. So I do think it's unfortunate. And I do think some of the debate now about oversight of cryptocurrency is, again, this turf battle between the market regulators and the bank regulators we saw this with the OTC derivatives markets back in the late 1990s, where Brixley Bourne, you recall, she was the chair of the CFTC. She wanted to pose some market regulation over off-exchange derivatives, which at that point were basically, it was the Wild West. And the Fed, the bank regulators, the Fed and the Treasury, and the Treasury typically sides with the Fed on things like this, said no. We don't need you to regulate because all the big derivative dealers are banks and we regulate those banks. So they passed something called the Commodity Futures Modernization Act, which basically removed any regula market regulatory oversight over OTC derivatives markets. Huge mistake. Credit default swaps in particular were a huge driver of the outsized losses the financial system was experiencing during the crisis. And of course, Dodd-Frank reversed a lot of that. But yeah, that is just another example where these turf battles will take you to the wrong policy result because they're based on who wants to oversee it versus who is the right person to oversee it. And with crypto, it's absolutely, you know, look, if banks want to do crypto, then yeah, the bank regulators need to get involved. But these are market regulatory issues and they're serious. And these tensions are delaying more effective investor protections, I think, because who's got the jurisdiction is still unresolved. And I feel losses, Washington's plane. I do. <laughs> I remember that. And I was just like, oh, this is not fair. I don't think you need a whole new regulator for crypto. I know a lot of people in the crypto industry once said, that's the last thing we need is yet another regulator. I do think you need clarity around, you know, it's the SEC, CFTC. If you combine the SEC and CFTC, I just put it all there. But the issue is manipulation, transparency, investor protection. It may be a different asset 
But these are still the same issues. These are still the same issues. And again, I, I think the SEC and CFTC are, are much better equipped to handle them. Interesting. I really appreciate you sharing. I think at a minimum for the Ripple case, the broader implications aside, I, I don't think they should be punished if they were operating with it as a currency when they were told that was a currency. Anybody's, exactly. Anybody's, <laughs> no. yeah, well, yeah, I know. Exactly. Yeah. Well, there's, there's, a, lot, yeah, there's a lot of that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Lots of opinions there. I'm well, like, well, and of course with, with Ripple, there really wasn't, I don't recall, there was, that was more, there really wasn't investor harm. I mean, like Stablecoin, there's some real, I mean, Tether, come on, that's a, it's a Ponzi scheme. There are certain asset categories, there are some real investor issues with Ripple. It was just kind of more, it was a positive innovation. I don't recall Ripple doing anything evil <laughs> at the time. It was just like, I get to regulate. No, I get to regulate. <laughs> yeah, right, right. She lives so many things I want to dive into. And I actually want to shift, if you're okay with it, into a little bit of conversation about your post FDIC career. You then re-entered academia as the first female head of Washington College. Would love to hear more about that. What inspired you to pursue that position? And also, you spent a lot of time thinking about reducing the burgeoning debt that college students faced. I'd love to hear more about how your time in that university enlightened you to that issue, how you view that issue today, what you think the solutions are. That was a good experience. You know, I deal the older I get, I guess, the more I want to try to help younger people and try to make this a better situation for them. And I, I do worry about the, you know, overall indebtedness and our country's just suffering from a lot of indebtedness. It's not just consumer or students, it's household, it's government, it's business, but at least in the, in the space of student debt, the lack of regulation around federal government's student debt is really frightening. They basically use banks, excuse me, colleges are basically originating these loans. They're the ones, the financial aid offices package them up and give them the financial aid letter. And they're conflicted back to incentives because they get the revenues from the loans. So their incentives are to maximize loan revenues. And that's just human nature. That's not a criticism. That's just that's just human behavior. That's That's how the incentives are set up. But this thing with the best of intentions to really make student debt, student loans widely available for people to go to college has distorted incentives, something terribly. And you've got this ratchet up of tuition and, and room and board cost paid for in every time. And then Pell Grants, even that, thank God that's not debt. But again, you, you increase the Pell Grant and the tuition goes up. So it's been this constant ratchet. So I wanted to see if we could chart a different course at Washington College. And so we really put an emphasis on raising money. I think a lot of philanthropy should be directed towards scholarships to replace student debt or at least reduce student borrowing. In Washington College, I think we did a good job. We raised a lot of money for scholarships. I'm not sure the schools prioritize it. I think increasingly they have now. We put a lid on costs. I knew what the marginal cost was for each student we wanted to enroll. And we had a program called George's Degree, which was a full ride, first generation, very low income students. And I think our marginal cost is around 25000 So every time somebody wanted to come in to spend money on anything, I said, well, is it worth, you know, you want to spend $100,000? Is it worth for Georgia's Brigade students? I don't think so. A finance person would think that way. It reoriented their thinking towards the trade-offs. These kids, I mean, this is not a bottomless pit of money, these student loans. These kids have to pay it back. So now we're coming to terms with it. There may be some debt forgiveness. I'm for that. Trying to Debt forgiveness would be fine with me if we change the incentives so we don't just fill up the debt burden again. That is the main problem I can see with debt forgiveness. I want to do something different. And we did, we had a fixed report program. So we found a lot of student borrowing was geared towards the scholarship. So you get a certain amount of scholarship assistance every year, but the scholarship assistance would stay static 
when tuition and room and board could go up. So kids would have to borrow to pay for that. So we froze tuition for four years and we took room and board at whatever the inflation was, you know, we kept it to that. And that was a good, that gave families some financial certainty. It was a good recruiting tool too. That brought a lot of students to Washington college. So I feel very good about those programs. I think a lot of them have lasted, outlasted me. <laughs> Not all of them maybe, but most of them are still there. It was a good focus, but I just wish more college leaders would take this more seriously because it's not fair to these kids. It's just not fair to these kids. And especially kids borrowing $50,000, $60,000 to get a psychology major. And God bless psychology majors. It's a wonderful discipline. Not a very good thing for getting a job. You know, you're racking up $60,000 of debt for an undergraduate degree and getting a $35,000 a year job when you graduate. That doesn't make sense. And if that's what they want to do, fine. But being fully counseled on that so they know the options and maybe doing a dual major or something. I just think there's so much more colleges can do and advising students too, to help them understand their educational attainment, their course of study, how that can translate into job opportunities when they leave and what their likely borrowing capacity, their likely income producing capacity will be. I'm doing a project with the Peterson Foundation right now. Uh, it's called Student Debt Smarter. And it's a suite of resources, but it's also got a calculator that does just that, allows you to pick a school, pick a major, pick an area where you want to live once you graduate. And then it will calculate for you based on the cost of living in that area and what your likely projected earnings will be at that school, at that major, how much debt you can afford. And nobody else does that, but it's just so basic. And I think it'll be really, really important for kids to understand in aggregate how much debt they should really be taking on. And I'm excited about that, but we need more tools like that. Now the student debt system is more, too many schools are still finding every single penny they can borrow versus counseling them how much they should borrow. And that's the distinction we're really trying to make with this project. You've spent a lot of time. I saw some recent news coverage. We, in our last one-on-one, our last phone call talked about this, but you've been trying to teach kids more basic concepts about finance. I was going to ask you your thoughts on the buy now, pay later on how young people are spending their money. And I think this is a perfect segue into that. Um, We'd just love to hear more about the books you're writing and about blue-footed boobies and Uh, borrowing oh, blue-footed boobies and uh, borrowing boobies. And I would love to hear more about the kind of yeah. core concepts around money that you think young people today yeah. need to understand. I want young people to have better money skills. And yeah, these books are, they're picture books. They're written for elementary school students and they're, it's just basic financial concepts. But you know, the things that trip people up as adults are the kind of our inner child coming out, right? So impulse buying, right? Got to have it now. Can't wait for it. Can't wait to save the money. Got to have it now. So you buy to buy it now. And that's one of the things that really bothers me about BMPL. I wrote an op-ed on this, actually. I tested one out. I tested Klarna out to see. <laughs> so it's like their target market, all these BMPL providers, their target market are people your age, you know, 18 to 35. And a lot of financial products do target that cohort because frankly, they don't manage their money as well as they should. So credit cards, they carry credit card balances, they pay late fees, they use overdraft protection. You look at how the distribution of those types of fees spread out over age demographics, and that's the age group. I do worry that this is instead of, on the positive side, the MPL is a lot simpler than a credit card. So this thing was very easy to use, six weeks, four equal payments, and I was done in six weeks, no interest, no late fees, though there were other 
some other of their products do have late fees. But the problem is, instead of using it to replace a credit card, it's actually being used to replace a debit card. So you can see the debit card, the credit card usage is going down. Well, it's impacting credit card usage, but it's impacting debit card usage anymore, which suggests that people are using this to buy things that, to finance things that they otherwise would have paid for in full. And they're also buying more. And, and that's the whole marketing behind BMPL. They can provide this interest-free money because the retailers pay the providers a lot for it because people buy more of it. And they're buying stuff, again, that otherwise they would be paying cash for and not financing. And what happens is they end up, they can't afford it. They miss payments. They have to take out another loan to pay it back. They over they forget that the thing's going to be automatically deducted from the checking account. They get an overdraft fee. There are a lot of traps in BMPL that worry me a lot, and I'm glad you're asking about it. I hope people will be hearing this before they do too much Christmas shopping, because I know BMPL providers are out in full. <laughs> buy this, buy this, pay for it later. <laughs> yeah, I want my book, Billy the Borrowing Buffet and Booby, is a BMPL scheme. <laughs> it's a sly seal on the Galapagos Islands who, uh, who takes advantage of a borrowing booby. He wants to buy an umbrella and he wants it now. He doesn't have the 10 sardines that it takes. So he does. It's really usurious. It's like the payment doubles every month. He doesn't pay. And of course, you can figure out what happens. You know, don't borrow to buy for discretionary things. Wait till you have the money and then buy it. And it's dumb debt. That's the dumbest kind of debt. But those are kind of basic things. 70 year olds can pick that up. They can so understand that. I love reading that book with kids because they giggle. They giggle at Billy as he keeps buying more stuff and his debt gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And they're rolling their eyes and they're having a good time making fun of him, but it's sticking in their head. What a silly movie he's being. And, and that's what I want. That's what I want to stick in their in their little minds. And hopefully we'll stay there when they grow up. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. I'm surprised that I haven't read Isabel's car wash yet. Yeah, and, right. Well, uh, that's about the stock market. So there you go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when Shark Scam comes out, yeah. I got to tell you, my partner, Maya, she's I would say one of the most disciplined and strategic, thoughtful people I've ever met when it comes to money, graduating undergrad and med school almost debt-free on almost completely her own accord, her own just hard work and discipline. I think she'll definitely want us to buy these books to read to our kids. I can already hear it. Like second birthday, she's going to want me to start buying these. (laughs) (laughs) And we will. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you should read Princess Persephone Loses the Castle too. That's that's about a, back to our earlier conversation about... But about payment shock loans and mortgage debt, that's about a sleazy home repair mortgage lender <laughs> who takes advantage of a princess on Ganymede the moon. So yeah, there I have a lot of fun. They're funny books. I don't like finger whacking didactic stuff. I mean, so much of the literature out there is boring, you know, and lecturing. Either that or it's uh, it's like here's how to get rich, right? I hate that too. The best way to build financial security is to save regularly and don't do stupid things like overdraft protection or carrying a balance on your credit card. I mean, just simple things like that for most families, you can build wealth adhering to those basics and get a little bit of investing acumen too and have good responsible financial advisors, people that were maybe in the Scholars of Finance program. (laughs) And there you go. You'll be in good shape. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Sheila. I know we only have a few minutes left. I would love to hit you with two rapid fire questions if I can. First is about you, and the second is about actually SOF and your involvement, as you just alluded to. So the first question, you've been in government service for a long time. You were in academia. You were in the private sector for a number of years. Today, you're on a number of boards, public boards, advisory boards, et cetera. You were named during your tenure at the, as the chair of the FDIC as one of Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People. 
and you've arguably been a public figure over the last over a decade. I want to ask how has being a, a public figure affected you personally in your career? You know, how have you sort of taken that in stride with, you know, humility and not losing sight of what actually matters? I've tried to turn it to be an advantage. A lot of media when I was at the FDIC, I continued to do a lot of public commentary and it's not an end though. It's a means to an end. You know, you do it when you want to explain a policy result, you want to explain a regulatory action. So I, net net, I think being a public figure has helped me accomplish things in my life that I wanted to pursue, especially on policy decisions and regulatory decisions. There are disadvantages. Sure. People want to if you have a public profile, there are always people out there that make themselves feel big by trying to shoot at you. And you just kind of ignore that. For the most part, it's been an asset. I've been blessed. I've been successful with the media mainly because I am open with them. I don't try to play games or slice and dice the truth or whatever. I just tell them what I think. Sometimes too direct. Maybe I may be a little too direct sometimes, but overall, I think it's worked well for me. Good, good. And I appreciate you not mentioning that one of the downsides is you have annoying young people like me who pester you for your time oh, and no, for your advice. <laughs> That's a positive too. That's a positive. I meet That's, a lot of I let I meet a lot of good people because of it, including mm-hmm. you, Russ. Oh <laughs> uh, well, thank you. That that actually segues into my final question today, Sheila. You've been so generous with the time that you've given to SOF, to scholars of finance here, you know, coaching me, advising me personally coming and speaking to our students in our speaker series here on our podcast, taking almost an hour out of your day to share your insights with our community and our audience. I want to ask you, you know, you get a lot of requests for your time and you're very busy. What stood out to you about scholars of finance and our mission and your experience? Why would you encourage others to get involved as well? Yeah. Well, we, we need, look, I believe in finance. I've been in finance most of my career. I've criticized financial institutions in the past. I thought it had conduct that merited it, but I don't confuse that I don't support the banking system, the financial system I do. It performs an important function, but we don't want a financial system that's just about rent seeking and profit exploitation. We want we want a financial system that's a two-way street that provides real value to customers. They make money off but the customer gets something out of it. That's the kind of financial system you want. And to have a financial system like that, you need to attract good people, people with high ethical standards, people driven by to finance not just because they want to make money, but because they want to provide value to the people who use their financial service. So, and I think that's what scholars of finance is about. And Ross, I've been very impressed with you. You've been relentless in your dedication and building the organization. And you've got so many more campuses now and your funding base is, is good. I would expect nothing less of scholar of finance to be good at fundraising. <laughs> but, but, you know, you've really built a very impressive organization that's, that's growing rapidly. And that's a good thing because I think anybody who wants to go into finance should should be attracted to the mission of SOF. It's very important. We need good people. We need good people in the the financial system for it to work right. Thank you so much, Sheila. And thank you for helping us inspire character and integrity in the next generation of finance leaders, sending more good people into the industry where there already are a lot of good people and we're excited to send more. Exactly. Yeah. Sheila, I want to thank you for your time today. It was so wonderful having you on. Cannot wait to have you on again. I've learned so much. I'm sure our audience has learned a lot listening today too. And just want to say thank you again. My, my pleasure. It was fun. I enjoyed it. Awesome. Thanks. Thank